0: everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen, and see what they have to offer because again, these are hand-selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoin. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high-net-worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com/breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Leden. Leden lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Leden as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Leden has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. Uh, we're going to be doing something a little bit different today. This is going to be our first ever solo series. So that's going to consist of me going through uh, some content here with you. Uh, And this is going to be focused on a piece that I wrote back in November 2019, titled An Open Letter to Ray Dalio Regarding Bitcoin. Now, at that time, I was operating a hedge fund. Uh, I'd become a big fan of Ray's work. He's one of the best performing hedge fund managers in history. Uh, And he had written a book, has written a book, titled Principles. And so... In this book, he lays out his principles for life and for work. It's a very detailed book, Um, I think very useful for a lot of aspiring executives or really anyone that's, that's trying to progress in life and work. And so one of the things that struck me though was in going through this book, he was espousing all of these principles that seemed to be very consistent with the ethos of Bitcoin. But at the time, Ray was publicly bearish on Bitcoin. So he had uh, a video where he had basically commented on, on Bitcoin's lack of utility as money and saying why it would never work, et cetera, et cetera. But I was, my opinion of the situation was that Ray had basically dismissed Bitcoin at the outset without, without doing a deep study. Because again, in his book, Principles, the things he was laying out, um, which we'll get into here today, were positively embodied in bitcoin in my opinion. So, I set out to write this piece to reconcile the difference. Basically, basically to try an attempt to explain the fundamentals of bitcoin through the lens of Ray's principles. And my hope was to create something that's entertaining, educational, uh, and hopefully, you know, to help Ray Dalio cut through the misunderstanding at some point. Now I, like I said, I published this in November, 2019. I ended up going on Anthony Pompliano's podcast in March, actually it was at the end of February, 2020, which aired in March, 2020. And we went through a, a summary outline of this written piece. And the outline that I prepared is about 33 pages long, summarizing the entire, uh, the publication itself was probably hundred pages long. So the, the outline summarized it down to about a third And of that outline, uh, Pomp and I got through about one half of it on his his show. So there's a second half to this outline that's never been explored publicly, which I'm looking forward to doing with you today. And the reason, you know, as I said, there was this dissonance with Dalio, kind of his stated principles on life and work, and his views on Bitcoin that I wanted to address. That was one reason I decided to do this. Uh, But doing this solo series, really is being motivated by getting through to the second half of this outline that i've never shared publicly and because that episode that i did with pomp i think it it was one of his top performing episodes of all time Uh, i think it was perhaps one of his if not the best performing bitcoin focused episode that he's ever done and the big reason for me though is all of the positive feedback i got from it people have told me Many times and many places uh, over the past few years how this episode Which was based on this this outline was their orange pill moment or their original Introduction to the Bitcoin rabbit hole, let's say that they maybe had heard about Bitcoin or even owned some Bitcoin But after listening to this episode and this content, they were really uh, Captivated by the depth that that Bitcoin represented So I'm hoping to recreate that for those of you who may have not seen it before And like i said to get into the second half of the outline which we've never shared before so this is a long thing i don't know how many hours it's going to take we're going to chop it into several episodes as we do with all of our series the one difference being i'm not going to have a guest this time it's just gonna be myself i will be referring to notes Uh, this is a 33 page outline so please bear with me and with all of that introduction in mind let's get started So I think to really understand the fundamentals of money and economics and ultimately the significance of Bitcoin, we have to get very brass tacks. And, you know, a lot of this, a lot of what we do on the show is we go back to exploring the evolutionary history of money. How does money originate? Where does it come from? How does it, has it been changed over time? How has it been corrupted, et cetera, et cetera. But to get into Ray's worldview a little bit, he has this concept in his organization, Bridgewater, called the idea meritocracy. Now, we're gonna get into what that is exactly, but for just a quick summary, Ray essentially attempted to create an organizational environment and a business culture where the best ideas would be promoted and would succeed. So rather than having a politicized organization, right, where the guy with the longest tenure or the biggest desk uh, gets to gets the say or has the authority inside of the organization, Ray attempted to create something where uh, action was being taken based on the best ideas, rather than uh, the most popular or most um, uh, most popular person, I guess, or or most a person most in authority, something like that. So I want to get really brass tacks today, coming from that angle, that angle of ideas, what they are, how they influence economic activity, uh, and why they're so important for human beings. So we could say that everything that we say, that we do, that we make, it starts out as an idea, right? Everything begins in the mind, you know, you think, and then you act. Um, And the purpose of the world economy, really, is in this most uh, brass-tack idea sense, is to generate and share useful ideas through trade. So when we're providing, you know, creating goods and trading them or selling them to someone else, or we're providing services, there is this transfer of knowledge that's always taking place. You know, people are always looking at their circumstances, looking at the tools they have for the job, and trying to imagine you know, new and better ways of accomplishing whatever that goal is. And if you can come up with something, you know, a new idea that's, that's useful or lets you do something better, faster, or cheaper, you can sell that idea into the marketplace. And that is, that's basically innovation in a nutshell, right? We're constantly looking for better ways to solve problems, and if we can find one, then we can capture that idea and sell it into the marketplace um, as an entrepreneur. So as we trade with one another, our ideas go through this refinement process and they become better, better and better and better. So they give everything we say, do or make more specialized qualities. So we could consider like in language how much more sophisticated English has become today relative to what it was, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago. and technology drives a lot of this change, right? We have certain terms that we did not have before the invention of say digital technology where you may hear someone say a thing like, hey, let's let's do a download about that real quick. Or let me, I'd like to double click on that. You know, they are expressing these different actions you know, in kind of the idea space, but they're using these analogies of technology to explain them. So language is becoming refined in the process of economic trade, but also the manifestation of these ideas in tools and technologies is also becoming refined in in normal innovation. So you might consider how, like, transportation technologies, for instance. We used to use a wagon to get from the East Coast of the United States to the West Coast. That was a three-, four-month journey fraught with peril. You know, if you've ever played the game Oregon Trail, it's really hard to cross the rivers and you're constantly dying of some disease and all of these things, right? It's a very perilous journey when your technology is limited to a wagon. Now, fast forward a couple of hundred years and we get something like the automobile, all right? That makes that trip across the country much faster, much safer, much more efficient. Um, you know, it reduces it from maybe three or four months to something like 30 hours. And then you could fast forward a little bit more to something like airplanes where we can now, you know, get from East coast to West coast in three or four hours. Um, obviously much, it's much faster. It's much more efficient. Uh, it's much safer even than, than, car travel. So that's, that's the process, right? That is the economic process is this ongoing refinement of ideas and that refinement is driven by trade this is kind of the key point here that new and better ideas contrary to this kind of notion we have of the inventor sitting alone in a room and just concocting some new idea and selling it in the world sure maybe that happens from time to time but it's more often that people engaged in trade and people engaged in craft, right? that are actually tinkering with solving these problems. They are the ones that figure out the new and better ways of doing things. And then they sell a solution into the market and other people engaged in the tinkering process, maybe use their tool and then build upon it and refine it and sell it back and so on and so forth. This is that constant um, process that's that's refining our ideas and our technologies driving innovation and ultimately driving civilization so in trade everything is valued at some ratio of everything else for instance you might say that a car is worth 132 chairs or a house is worth 11 cars something like that right everything ex- is exchangeable at a ratio of everything else these are, these are called exchange ratios and one useful definition of money is that it is just the medium through which we more easily calculate these exchange ratios. So in that sense, money is just a tool, right? And tools are instruments that save us time. So specific to money, money is going to be a tool that helps us save time in the negotiation, calculation, and execution of trades. So you could think of it as like something that accelerates the free market process that helps us refine our ideas and drive innovation and technology. So, generating time savings like that, that's the purpose of all tools. So, the shovel, right, this is my common example. You can dig a lot more holes per hour using a shovel than you can with your bare hands. So the shovel is an instrument that accelerates you in your aim towards hole digging, right? Just like money is an instrument that accelerates you in your aim of trade with someone else. And so this is also, you can think of this too, is when you're buying and selling something, market actors are basically communicating their preferences into the marketplace. So if I decide to buy a a house and sell a car, The information that I'm pushing out to the market with that buy and sell decision is to make more houses, right? Because I've increased the net demand on houses and decrease production of cars because I've reduced the net demand for automobiles. I'm actually selling the automobile, reducing uh, demand. So, and it's that system of propagating information, ideas, and preferences that is what's coordinating people, right? It's what lets you know what to do. So when you wake up as a producer of houses and you see that, you know, prices, house prices have gone up a little bit in an area, then you are actually incentivized to go out and produce more houses and vice versa. If you're the car manufacturer, you see the prices of cars are being slightly uh, depressed, then you have an incentive to produce less cars or a disincentive to produce more cars, however you wanna put it. So, That's just kind of alluding to money's, let's say, informational properties and uh, how it propagates information throughout a society via the price signal. Now, to focus a bit more on the origins of money, and this is contrary to popular misconception, I would argue. Most people think money is a government creation, but money is not a government creation. Money arises naturally in any society where trade is occurring which is to say basically every society right if you have a society you have some form of trade occurring and it's very simply just the most tradable asset Uh, now there's a lot of terms that people assign here you could say it's the most liquid asset the most exchangeable asset the most marketable good Um, the most saleable good is another term the austrians have used but essentially again in a world where everyone's trading things right trading things back and forth some asset and everything's trading at some ratio of everything else some asset inevitably becomes the most liquid asset in that economy right it's the thing that has that's most widely accepted in trade for everything else that is money that naturally emergent asset that becomes most tradable as a result of its, basically, its properties, uh, that is money, not something that the government ordains to be money. Uh, and we'll get in a bit more into to how these things overlap. But uh, to dig in, to focus, stay focused on the origins of money for a moment, you have people seeking to satisfy their wants through trade, right? I have oranges and I want apples for it, for instance, right? So my preference is to have apples. They, the person seeking to obtain apples will trade their oranges for pears. Even if they don't want pears, all they need to know is that the person that has apples is willing to trade those apples for pears. So then you would trade the oranges for the pears and then the pears for the apples. So you would trade up the liquidity hierarchy, if you will, from less liquid less marketable goods to more liquid, more marketable goods. And whatever becomes in that process, you know, favored by consensual market actors, whatever becomes the most marketable good is money. So, um, and this, you know, we've assigned this to a lot of things across history. Uh, You know, salt, glass beads, cattle, ultimately gold, right, gold is, still kind of the premier money in the world. Um, These things tended to be promoted to the role of money or to the became the most marketable good uh, based on really just the technological realities of the societies operating uh, operating within them. So, and as societies advance, like I said, we've tried a lot of things as money, but... They tended to coalesce, uh, in particular once we got telecommunication technologies in place, they tended to coalesce around precious metals as money because they best satisfied the properties of good money, the things that, the qualities in a asset that people seek when they are uh, attempting to store value across time or trade, trade value across space with others. And these monetary properties, which I'll unpack a bit, are durability, divisibility, portability, recognizability, and scarcity. Now gold was basically you could say the monetary metals were the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable technology we had, portable monetary technology that we had historically. Monetary metals best filled those roles, or best satisfied those uh, desired qualities. Of the monetary metals gold was the most scarce meaning that it had the least flexible supply or the most inelastic supply. That is to say that no matter how hard we tried to produce gold, its supply changed the least. Uh, now, when you're looking to use money as a store of value, you wanna, you wanna park your wealth in a medium or your ex- excess economic energy in something that you know will persist across time and you know cannot be easily inflated or confiscated by someone else this made gold that premier asset because it was the most what we're saying when we say gold is scarce it's equivalent to saying that gold the gold supply is the most inflation resistant supply right no one there's a huge incentive for anyone that can produce money to produce it and gold was the most resistant asset to production, right? No matter how much time or energy we allocated towards its production, its supply increased the least, which means simultaneously that anyone storing their wealth in that medium is maximally insulated from inflation. And that's really important, right? If you want a long-term store value, you need something that's hard to steal and hard to inflate. And that's why we call Bitcoin and gold, historically, hard money, right? very hard to steal very hard to inflate now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor crowd health crowd health is a bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance now let's face it legacy health insurance is an absolute scam nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian chris rock insurance you got to have some insurance you got to There's an insurance they shouldn't even call it insurance they should just call it in case shit (laughs) so go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove to learn more or sign up now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor wasabi wallet wasabi lets you use bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money specifically wasabi wallet is an open source non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default by using wasabi you're effectively putting the private back in private property Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from two to ten percent of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code Breedlove. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes so go to keys.casa that's c-a-s-a today to sign up and use discount code breedlove governments come on the scene here though because the one thing gold really lacked uh, was portability right gold is physical it's heavy uh, it is expensive and risky to secure and move around right you need armed guards you need armored trucks, et cetera. You have a lot of economic value uh, in a small space, so there's a huge incentive to steal it if you can. And that limitation on the portability of gold really really restricted its utility as money, ultimately. That if we're gonna have a global society with a lot of people trading, a lot of good ideas being generated, A money that can't move rapidly across space or can't be transacted rapidly across space is a pretty significant, um, it pretty significantly constricts the ability of the economy to produce new ideas and wealth, let's say. So what do we do? Humans being human, we innovate around it, right? We put all the gold in a central, uh, with a central custodian, which was originally a warehouse, would later become a bank, and as today, we would call this a central bank. And we issued a paper redemption certificate on top of it, originally called a warehouse receipt, later called a banknote, today called a Federal Reserve banknote. And that piece of paper, that banknote, was redeemable for gold. So now, in this monetary technology called a gold backed currency, we had gathered all of the useful monetary properties of gold but also augmented its portability to make it very transactable across space uh, allowing us to engage in high frequency transactions and exchange which is obviously uh, a net benefit for the economy right for this refinement process of ideas and goods and services etc so that works well but the problem comes in that you we now needed to trust the bank, the the custodian of that gold. We now need to trust the individual or individuals running that organization that they would not issue more paper than they had gold reserves to justify. And this became a honeypot for governments historically. Governments have always targeted uh, banks or treasuries or um, gold custodians as a means of nearly limitless revenue, right? If, if the bank, if the government can take over the bank and um, essentially force them through, you know, legal means or even coercive means to issue them, you know, loans, cheap loans, free loans, free money, uh, suspend gold convertibility for customers, all of these things enable governments a central point of attack that can give them nearly limitless financial benefit. And so, as I argue, governments basically co-opted the gold standard. Right, The gold standard works to the extent that the peg between dollars or currency and gold is maintained, but that peg is dependent on the integrity of human beings, right? And human beings are subject to human nature. And uh, I think governments basically co-opted that standard and built a pyramid scheme on top of gold called fiat currency. Now, it sounds like a strong term, but I wanna get mechanical in my description here. A pyramid scheme is a business structure in which those in higher tiers are basically stealing value from those in lower tiers. And these are often new entrants, right? The pyramid scheme is constantly trying to add new participants that can fund the, uh, the windfall of, of higher layer participants. And the scheme keeps working so long as you add new participants to it, but it falls apart uh, once there is no, no one left at the bottom of the pyramid to steal from. That's what causes the pyramid scheme to collapse. Now, fiat currency in particular is a pyramid scheme where central banks are at the top. They hold the only real money in the world, which is gold. And they generate profits by making loans to successive layers of banks below them, right? So the central bank will lend to, uh, wholesale banks, wholesale banks lead to retail banks, retail banks lend to consumers. There's this, uh, pyramid basically. And the profits on all those lending activities roll up, uh, in a way that, that very much mirrors the traditional pyramid scheme. So... This fiat currency pyramid scheme, it's a leverage based business, right? This is all debt driven that the, again, those at the higher tiers are loaning to those below them. Uh, it requires more and more debt to remain functional, right? Again, so you have to extend more layers of loans to people lower down the stack. You need constant new entrants. Once you stop having new entrants. uh, that that inhibits the accumulation of additional debt and that makes the pyramid scheme unsustainable. Another way to say that is that it makes the debt load unserviceable, right? You cannot pay the interest on the existing debt because you don't have anywhere new to generate new uh, loan revenues from or interest revenues from. So that kind of in a nutshell is why fiat currencies have collapsed historically. And I think that's why we're going to see them collapse again because... um, there's only so many people in this world and people don't like to get scammed. So, especially when there's an option uh, with something like Bitcoin that you can now exit these pyramid schemes and operate in a fair parallel system, uh, I think it will actually accelerate the demise of, of fiat currencies. So, I guess a key, a key point here is that when governments co-opt the gold standard, or they, or they co-opt a bank, they're interrupting that free market process. They, You've introduced coercion to the equation, right? Coercion and violence and force. None of these things which are present in a pure free market capitalistic environment where people are, and again, this is, it's, it's idealistic, but it also maps onto reality in that the perspective on pure capitalism is that people are basically self-owned. The individual owns themselves. They are free to go out into the world and combine their faculties, their skills, their knowledge, their ingenuity, their know-how with factors that they can discover in nature, right? Wood, sand, dirt, minerals, ore, water, whatever, and you can combine these things in an intelligent way to solve a problem, right? You can create capital. And those individually self-owned people that have created goods and capital through their own efforts, through their own work, are then free to go and trade with other similarly self-owned people. And it's that process of free exchange that drives the refinement of ideas and the creation of wealth in the world, as we have said. But once a government interferes with that market process, and they commandeer something like the gold standard, for instance, you're basically moving the world away from a free market to an unfree market, or we call this a centrally planned economy. Um, Now, surely you've heard of central planning and things like Soviet Russia. Um, That is where the entire sphere of trade was attempted to be centrally planned by a bureaucracy that would be all goods and services. Central banking is a little bit more narrowly focused than it's just focused on the central planning of the money. And it's kind of left most of the rest of the market space open to free market dynamics, but as we'll get into when you corrupt the money in this way, it tends to be infectious and and corrupt other other aspects of the economy. So in that sense, we could say free markets are basically these natural self-organizing forms of free exchange, right? People just coming together, trading what they have, right? Their their goods, services, knowledge um, with others. And they these forms of free exchange are encouraging us to find better ways of doing Things, making saying or doing things by making bets with one another because every exchange you make every trade you make with someone that's essentially a bet right i'm betting that the money i give to you is less valuable than the thing you're giving to me now um this is very subjective right value itself is subjective people people's satisfaction Is a subjective experience. This isn't an objectively discernible quality. But the point would be that the freedom of exchange ensures that both parties to a trade are leaving it psychologically better off. They they are they have attained more value than they have given up, at least from their subjective standpoint. Now, when I say that, then those are bets, right? These are bets when people are trading one another, making bets, and between like competition between entrepreneurs is they're basically trying to outdo one another and like who can provide the better faster cheaper way of solving this problem and as one entrepreneur is making bets right they're making investments of, of capital they're they're securing labor contracts they're planning they're maybe building factories whatever is necessary to create the thing that they're selling They are investing into this production structure as are other entrepreneurs. And it's whoever proves the other wrong in the marketplace, which is to say, whoever provides the good or service, better, faster, cheaper, wins, right? You've proven the other guy's business model wrong. Um, That you are creating a productivity gain for the world. So entrepreneurs are competing with each other to prove each other wrong by finding and discovering and selling faster, cheaper, better ways of doing things. And that makes us more productive. And that productivity gain is diffusing into society through trade, right? Once the, what's a good example here? The iPhone, right? One of these major productivity breakthroughs, the idea of the smartphone. Once it starts to be traded into the marketplace, you get all of these other organizations copying it, right? They want they want to compete with the iPhone. They want to m- deliver the services it, it renders better, faster, cheaper. And so that whole process is really driving productivity of the world. And as we said, now, taking you back to the, the beginning here, those productivity gains are essentially better ways of saying, doing, and making things, right? Again, they're better ideas. so. Better ideas refined through trade equals more productivity. said differently, we could say those productivity gains are coming from more specialized ideas. So this is why in economics, they often talk about the division of labor, but, but this is something that's very closely, and the division of labor being just individuals focusing on specific parts of the production process. And then when you, the more individuals you get focused on a smaller portion of the production process the better they are at each stage and so when you chain them all together in one one production value chain you get a much more uh sophisticated product right like again like the iPhone there's no individual in the world that can create an iPhone it's the result of all these long complicated supply chains uh and people engaging with one another in, in consensual trade that makes something like the iPhone possible So it's productivity gains from more specialized ideas, Uh, this specialization being closely related to the division of labor. Because again, the more specialized you become, the more divided the labor process is, the more wealthy uh, we are becoming. And all of this is rooted in free trade, free exchange. Any restriction we place on that is going to be a limitation of the idea and wealth generative capacity of the marketplace. And that's a, that's a very important point I want to come back to. So to try and tie this in to Mr. Dalio's worldview, we could say that essentially free markets are idea meritocracies. And now I'm going to unpack idea meritocracy a bit more later, but I think that's a very key point that this idea this notion of the free market in economic science is the centerpiece to economics. Uh, it's the thing where all the value comes from. And the centerpiece to Dalio's philosophy is the idea of meritocracy. And I want to draw more parallels between them as we go. So, a bit more about free markets to help set us up for uh, what we're going to talk about in a bit. We'd say free markets are unhampered trade networks that encourage the cultivation and the diffusion of the best ideas within society. Kind of like a Darwinism of ideas, if you will. Um, The book, The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley, he even talks about ideas in this way, how they they are like animals in that they compete, they combine, they have sex, they reproduce, they go extinct. Uh, There's this this Darwinian theater of ideas playing out around us all the time. Uh, And in the market sense, all regulation of any form is a restriction and limitation on free market dynamics that reduce their capacity to generate good ideas and wealth. And the ultimate expression of a regulation is a monopoly. A monopoly is where all free market competition is suppressed through coercion or violence Uh, basically one producer says this is you know my exclusive right to sell this thing anyone else that tries to compete with me in the marketplace i am going to attack them right literally attack Uh, whether that's legally or physically it is there's a coercive aspect to all legal monopolies and in the world today as we sort of touched on earlier, the market for money is not a free market—not even close. It's it's about as far as you can be from a free market, because it is forcibly dominated by banking cartels, which we typically call central banks. And uh, you know, you cannot, for instance, introduce a competitive technology to the U.S. dollar. You will be thrown in jail. Your business will be shut down. Like that, that is not allowed. So. That should give you some inkling of how unfree the market for money actually is. And as we explained earlier, fiat currency, which is the central bank money, is essentially a pyramid scheme. Uh, And these pyramid schemes are monopolies, and these monopolies come at a very heavy cost to society. Uh, In particular, and if you've ever taken Economics 101, you know this, monopolies cause increased prices because the monopolist does not face competition from other producers, they can effectively charge the consumer whatever they want because they are the only show in town. The consumer has no other options. The consumer cannot go elsewhere um, due to the monopolist uh, coercive acts in preventing uh, economic competition. Monopolies also decrease innovation, right? Because there's less trade occurring in a monopolistic setting there's less ideation, there's less innovation, and it's really just reducing the scope of trade overall because if you can only get the, the product or service from one purveyor, then there's gonna be a lot less experimentation and a lot less uh, trade between market participants because you have to go just basically to that one consumer for the good. Now, I guess another key point here is that free markets sort of reiterating here, but free markets are the only way we become more productive as we described earlier, right? Entrepreneurs betting against each other, whoever does it better wins. The other guy loses and goes on to do something else. That is definitional to the word economic, right? To become more productive is to accomplish greater results with less efforts, which is the same thing as saying becoming more productive. So the free market, freedom of action, is the only pathway to becoming more productive, more prosperous, and more economic. The antithesis of that is the monopoly, right? Monopolies or unfree markets, if we want to call them that, they make mankind less productive, less prosperous, less economic. This is, it's anti-economic even. and. I think this is such a key point, especially for people today that look around at the problems in the world and want to attribute them to something like late stage capitalism. Not understanding that at the heart of every modern economy is an anti-capitalistic, an anti-economic, an anti-free market organization called the central bank, right? This is the problem not the freedom that everyone enjoys around the central bank to trade and and innovate and create things like the iPhone and these other wonderfully useful technologies. Rather, it is the most fundamental technology in the world that is fully monopolized and is not integrated into a free market environment that I think is hamstringing the world. It's holding us back in, in so many ways. And with all of that, background on money and markets and ideas in mind, we're here today to talk about one of the most successful capitalists in history, and that is Mr. Ray Dalio.